I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Welcome to Parallax Views, guest that I'm really, really excited to be speaking with, Hannah Homestead. She is a policy analyst for the Center for International Policy. They've been doing great work for years now, and uh, they're kind of, uh, you know, just getting back into the the uh, swing of things after the pandemic. They're doing important work. How are you doing, Hannah? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. So, Hannah, before we get into our main topic of the military and carbon emissions, uh, maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about CIP in case they're unfamiliar. So the Center for International Policy is a progressive foreign policy organization based in Washington, D.C. We've been around for nearly 50 years, and we focus on research, education, and convening on progressive foreign policy topics uh, in order to create a sustainable and secure future for everybody. Um, the, we recently announced that our new vice president joined Matt Duss, who was Bernie Sanders, uh, former, formerly Bernie Sanders, um, foreign policy advisor. Um, we have a lot of new exciting things in the works as well. So I wanted to have you on the show to talk about, uh, the military and carbon emissions. There's a, uh, new NDAA out. So for people that don't know, that's the National Defense Authorization Act uh, for the fiscal year 2024. We'll get into that, but maybe first let's start with uh, your work looking at military emissions. Yeah. So I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about this. It's really an important topic. So U.S. military emissions are giant. A tw- 2019 report put U.S. military emissions, if they were their own nation state, they would be the 47th largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. Wow. Um, Yeah. And they certainly uh, make up the most of the U.S. federal government's emissions. Um, They're responsible for between 77 to 80 percent of federal energy consumption. 
However, U.S. military missions only make up about 1% of the United States total emissions. So that's so the vast majority we see of emissions in the United States are actually from the consumption side of people in this country through transportation, through heating and energy um, costs as well. So in 2021, the Department of Defense, their scope one and two emissions totaled 51 metric tons of carbon dioxide. So this is about 75% of the total federal, federal government emissions, but only equivalent to about 1% of total United States emissions in 2020. Um, most of the military emissions are coming from operational sources, um, particularly jet fuel. However, the way that the military accounts for emissions is a little bit misleading. The way that they break down emissions are in different scopes. There's scope one, two, and three emissions. And this, I guess, leads to some gaps in, in the military reporting on these emissions. Right, because scope one emissions cover emissions from the exact source, like from the Department of Defense itself, the burning, the fuel that it burns directly. Scope two emissions are the energy that it purchases in order to heat its buildings, to um, transmit its equipment. And scope three emissions are supply chain emissions that are produced by companies that it contracts with or other other elements of the supply chain. So currently the Department of Defense is only really tracking scope one and two emissions, and it's not including scope three emissions, which are supply chain emissions, or scope three plus emissions, which is a new kind of concept that um, the Conflict and Environment Observatory is thinking about where this accounts for war fighting activities. So looking at soil degradation, displaced people, wa uh, waste, infrastructure damage that are the result of war, those kinds of emissions, which are truly astronomical and very difficult to calculate, are not also being, being included when we talk about military emissions. So I, I don't know if you're able to answer this, but with those scope three emissions, so would there be any way to collect info on that, given that they're from third party contractors? Yes. So this is a really great question. And there's been a lot of work being done on this exact issue. So the Biden administration in 2020 um, released an executive order, executive order 14057. Um, and the executive order was on catalyzing clean energy industries through federal sustainability. And so essentially it's a whole of government approach to try and transform the federal procurement system, the way that the federal government contracts with third-party contractors to ensure that we are moving towards a transition to, to clean and zero emission technologies. So following that executive order in 2022, actually the Department of Defense itself um, the General Services Administration and NASA uh, proposed a new rule that is titled Disclosure of Greenhouse Gas Emissions and Climate-Related Financial Risk. And what this rule does is ask federal suppliers to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions and their climate-related financial risks, also, and also to set science-based targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So this is part of this approach for the federal government to start looking at and accounting for not only the emissions that contractors are contributing, but also the risk that these contractors are facing in the face of climate crisis. And this is particularly something the Department of Defense is interested in doing, given that 
so much of the operations and the work and the the weapons procurement and research and testing is done through contractors and they are very incentivized to understand what the risk is to those contractors due to the climate. So this is something the Department of Defense is itself very interested in. And these are the exact issues that we see a, a fight about in Congress in the in the uh, current NDAA, as you mentioned. So the DOD actually wants to report on these scope three emissions, but, you know, they're trying to make plans and Congress are the ones blocking the efforts to do this is what you're yes. saying. Yes, that's exactly what we're saying here. So the Department of Defense, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, folks, there's a lot of different reasons to look at emissions reduction and a lot of different people that are involved in this type of work. Of course, you have, you know, climate advocates and folks that are really concerned about the climate crisis in general, um, trying to avoid the worst effects of a warming planet, not only for the United States, but for, you know, the world in general. Um, and you have the Department of Defense where the Department of Defense is very focused on the oper on their operations and their ability to maintain readiness and to complete their missions that they, you know, whatever that may be that they're asked to do, that they're able to do those those missions and plan for the safety and security of their own their personnel as well. So they very much are are interested in um in bolstering, you know, bolstering defense, uh like defense their bases and their equipment and their plans so that they're ready for for whatever might come their way with the changing climate. And this is something that Department of Defense has been planning for for, for many years. We've seen them talking about the the impact of the climate crisis on military readiness for decades. So this is something that's top of mind from them from an operational standpoint. In, in uh, other words, uh, the, the DOD views climate change as a national security issue. They do to the extent that it impacts the military's ability to operate well. So it's, it's, and, and also, of course, there's more. You, you cut out on, there for a second. You, know, you said they do. Effects, so. oh, and then. Sorry about that. They, they do, especially, especially in terms of military readiness and operations. There all there are also concerns about the impact um, uh, the that climate change being a, a, a conflict multiplier in certain ways. They use that terminology where, you know, research comp resource competition in a in a age where now we have a lot more a lot more competition over over resources like water, for example, and that impact that may have. Um, in terms of conflicts and fragile states, there's that concern, but primarily their concern is coming from a place of operations, operational standpoint. So they, go on, I'm sorry. sorry. I was gonna say as well, they released a new report earlier this year in April. They released a new report this April, the Department of Defense planned to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and this was uh, released under the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. Um, particularly on how the military is planning on reducing emissions to be better in, to fall in better in line with the whole of government approach to reduce emissions. I don't know if you want to get into the uh, open letter that CIP and a few other institutes, I believe Quincy sent to Congress regarding the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, what was in that letter? Yeah. So the no National Defense Authorization Act as well, just to uh, give a little background on that is the authorization bill that's 
passed each year. It's different than the Department of Defense budget, which is what determines the amount of funding that the Department of Defense will get. Um, this is an authorizing budget, so it dictates how the military can use the money that they get. Thousands of amendments are proposed each year to the NDAA, um, and it requires it's required to be passed in both the House and the Senate, and then it goes to the president's desk for his final uh, signature, um, hopefully by the end of the fiscal year. Um, so CIP was one of 28 organizations to support a letter that was organized by Win Without War. Um, the letter was sent to the leaders of the House and Senate, Senate Armed Services Committees, where the NDAA is initially drafted and debated. There were three points made in the letter that we wanted to talk about as being problematic, but essentially the letter was to urge congressional leadership to make sure that the NDAA is not used to protect defense contractors from accounting for their role in driving climate change. And this is something, again, that the Department of Defense itself is also in support of. Within the two drafts of the NDAA, because currently right now, the House passed their version, the Senate passed their version, there's going to be negotiations this fall again, and then the final version will be passed along and signed into law. Uh, so within the two different drafts, there are three amendments that directly undermine both um, the efforts to start to, starting to account for and plan and understand uh, defense contractor emissions. Um, in the House version, there are two points. One is the section is called 1822 of the House bill, and this would prevent the Department of Defense from using any authorized federal funds to conduct greenhouse gas inventorying or establishing science-based emission reductions targets for any Department of Defense contractors. So what this section of this bill would do was to prevent the Department of Defense from using any of their budget to do essentially what they had already proposed in the federal regulation to start to account and, and ask for how many emissions and what is your risk, essentially. Um, it's interesting to note that this amendment, it was introduced by Representative Fallon of Texas, and it was voted on, it passed by a margin, there were 31 yes and 28 no votes. Wow, that's, that's close. So when you look at just two votes, um, just there was a just a two vote margin in terms of passing this amendment, which would strike this important, important rule that the Department of Defense is actually asking for. Um, in the House version, there was also another section, section 1050, uh, that would prohibit the use of funds to implement certain executive orders, essentially um, gutting the executive order that President Biden had made in 2021 about trying to create a whole of government approach to reducing reducing admissions, including in the Department of Defense. Um, this was also voted on. There was also a one different vote one vote difference in this bill to pass this amendment. So we see these being passed in very, very slim, slim margin, margins. On the Senate side, the Senate side was a little bit different. So section 820 of the Senate bill would prohibit requiring defense contractors to provide information relating to greenhouse gas emissions. And so while this doesn't do away with the proposed rule entirely, it would severely constrain its effectiveness because it would ban the Department of Defense from requiring reporting 
about greenhouse gas emissions from non-traditional contractors. And non-traditional contractors represent a significant portion of contractors um, that work with the Department of Defense and other, and other groups as well. So we see these, so what we're seeing is in effect, all sponsored by, by Republicans, uh, I'll say as well, um, members of Congress stepping in to tell the Department of Defense that it cannot use federal funding to track and account for emissions produced by the, the people it contracts with, even though this is a specific point that the Department of Defense has said is important to military readiness. I, I mean, I know this is speculative, but why are these elements of Congress blocking this? Right. And and I should say as well, while these were sponsored by Republicans, they did pass with bipartisan support um, as well. Um, there's a, a many different issues. One of them has to do with the fact that the defense contractors represent significant elements of the economy and job creation in many states. And so you what you see here as well is oftentimes a hesitancy to change anything legislatively that would impact these contractors' ability to create jobs in districts. And so this is something that is, and, you know, to the point was, it, would this actually, you know, cut jobs in these districts? You know, I, I would say no. Um, I think this is important in terms of creating a framework where we can actually track and record our emissions, which is something that is critical to our national security. Um, that doesn't, that, but opening this up is something the industry is very much against. And that has been, you know, they have a lot of money that they lobby with. Um, and it really ultimately comes down as well to members of Congress saying, I don't want to jeopardize jobs. I don't want to jeopardize national security and I don't want to jeopardize jobs. And so this is where we we get stuck in terms of how do we really transition away from um, a very fossil fuel and carbon intensive militarized industrial base. We we do need to think about jobs in in that transition as well because this is really this is really top of mind for members of Congress and of course for the ability of you know everyday people that are just trying to make it their ends meet. Um, you know something we need to think about. Yeah, it, it sounds like there's like concern for at least some of these people in Congress that, you know, oh, my constituents need these jobs, you know, so. It is, it is, it is a concern. Um, it is a concern. That is, that is a big, and there's, you know, there's also, I've often heard, I've heard the argument that, well, they're going to build this stuff anyway, so we might as well we need this. We need this equipment for our national defense, since they're going to build it somewhere. So it might as well be in our district where we can get good paying jobs. Um, again, it, the fact that we are—it doesn't have to be that way. There are many ways um, that we can promote job growth, and, and there's been a lot of research actually as well in terms of investment in in jobs in other areas actually create much many more and and better paying jobs as well. So to rely on that argument is are, are you able to delve into that specifically like the ways in which we could you know shift towards um sort of a different model uh, of doing things when it comes to these when it comes to this job issue? Right. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting because it kind of goes again if you if we look if we look out and we take a kind of wide lens view 
in terms of emissions, the United States burns a lot of fossil fuels and our fossil fuel use per capita is 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 very high um, compared to many other countries. And so you see debates too, as well as saying, you know, we need to transform our entire economy, essentially. We need to transform our entire economy. And so we've seen there needs to be a rethinking of, of how we do a lot of different things, our industries, our transportation, our food systems. Um, and so part of this is, is being addressed in some ways through the recent bills like the Inflation Reduction Act. In general, we really need to rethink our entire economy if we're really looking at reducing fossil fuel emissions. Um, our economy, as well as our consumption patterns, our land use, our agriculture systems, transportation systems. Um, and some of that is, was done and, and starting to be think, thinking about through the Inflation Reduction Act and other bills that have been passed. For example, the Inflation Reduction Act last year um, was passed and you know, is spending a record, you know, nearly $370 billion on climate provisions to spark new investments in renewable energy and power generation. Unfortunately, a, a many a big part of that bill is investments or trying to create kind of a market for carbon capture, which has been somewhat an, of, of an unproven um of an unproven method of of allowing organizations or entities to continue to emit carbon, but then saying that we'll capture the carbon and store it away. Um, that is not necessarily uh, something that scientifically is backed as, as being super effective, but we have, um, we have efforts underway that are, that are, um, that are heading, you know, in the right direction. One thing too, I'll say though, is something that I find interesting that isn't discussed very often is how much, how our military actually also contributes to our very fossil fuel intensive lifestyle. And there's been some research that shows that between 16 to 20% of the Department of Defense base budget is actually really force for protecting oil and fossil fuel sources around the world. And so things like this, where we have the military making great efforts to really decarbonize and prepare um, to operate in a world in a changing climate with changing climate crises and um, being much more efficient. Um, but even if we have the greenest, leanest, greenest military, if we're still employing that military to extract essentially fossil fuel energy abroad and and burn that at an you know record-setting rate in the United States that that's something that we need to think about. We need to think about how we're going to change our domestic economy in a way that's equitable um, to create jobs and to create sustainable ways of living and being. And also- and I, I was going to, I was just going to add to that. I think that's the like elephant in the room, right? I mean, if we're going to have a transformation of the economy uh, to deal with climate change, I think that'll offer an opportunity for you know new jobs to be created but but go on certainly certainly it 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 certainly will be yeah there's i mean there's a lot of manufacturing needs in terms of in terms of uh green energy and that's something that i'm not the total expert on that but i know um there's a lot of research being done in terms of how do we transition um how do we transition uh companies or or manufacturing sites that used to produce 
some kind of military equipment that now is is often might be even be outdated in terms of what is the capacity that we what are the capabilities we need for for modern modern warfare how do we transition that into um a way to produce something that will that will allow us to be much more energy efficient and independent in the future um and something i think about often too is just how much fossil fuel fuel use is ingrained in the united states and militarily in our culture and something i didn't know about really was that Nazi Germany, you know, so much as since World War II really set the tone for kind of the world we live in now today and for our our real dependency on fossil fuels is that Nazi Germany, 80% of their soldiers were were used horses. 80% of the mobility that Nazi Germany um, employed were horse-drawn horses horses. And that's and so when you look at the the combustion engine and the mechanized uh, machinery that the United States invested in what became the leader in after World War II, during and after World War II, which really helped us win that war, um, importantly. Um, That, after the war, was then transitioned from a militarized capacity to a a domestic consumption capacity in terms of our, um, in terms of, uh, you know, private vehicles and other things. And so this is also something that goes deeper into the psyche of that, that engines and that things that are built to use fossil fuels are really, really critical to our national security. But that is also, you know, the world is changing and things never stay the same. And so one element, and I think the military is actually one of the, one of the loudest voices on this about needing to transition to the next kind of technology that will ensure us to be prepared for the next type of conflict. And particularly what they, you know, what they see as China, um, which is using, you know, autonomous weapons and different kinds of communications technologies and not, you know, necessarily fossil fuel-based um, engines or or other um, kind of legacy weapon systems that were really invested in heavily during the Cold War. Um, so that's something as well that it's, this is not only a transition we need to make um, in terms of our economy, you know, and there's a realistic climate crisis element to this, but also in our mental psyche around we need to we need to adapt and change as a nation um, in order to, you know, in order to avoid this climate crisis, be and be better prepared um, in in all ways for our security. How will the cr- climate crisis impact? Uh, foreign policy, or, or or how does foreign policy and, and sort of the militarized foreign policy we have affect U.S. emissions, and what needs to sort of change with regards to foreign policy? Right. Well, we're also in a different world today as well because of United States is actually the largest global producer of, of oil and gas. Um, so we produce the most oil in the world, more than Saudi Arabia. Um, that's also something that recently, um, I think in the last uh, five or so years, uh, we really stepped up on the global stage. And so that has been, uh, you know, and the background of all these climate promises to reduce emissions and reduce burning, we've really accelerated our own domestic production, you know, with the goal of, of energy independence that would reduce our, our risk elsewhere. Or our, our reliance on our countries reliance. like Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Right. To your, your question of, it's a good question. No, that's a that's a really important question and one that I don't think we talk a lot about things tactically 
But I think that bigger question around our strategy is, is really critical. Um, and if we look at documents like the National Security Strategy, which outlines, you know, the orientation, the doctrines and plans for how to how to operationalize our foreign policy, we see that what we do, our foreign policy is in the service of our national interests, which sounds innocuous and also kind of ambiguous, like what are national interests? But if you look in these documents, you'll see the national interests are identified as territorial sovereignty um, and security, so our homeland, and our economic interests and prosperity. And so when you un we understand that we are we use our military to also advance our economic interests and our economic interests are predicated on fossil fuel use, you see what we, we have, which is a, a global military presence, particularly in places that have oil resources. And, and this is, you know, the Iraq war is no secret that that was, you know, primarily around securing U.S. strategic interests, including oil reserves. Um, our giant military presence in Africa and Niger has been talked about a lot recently because of the coup. That's something that um, after 9-11, um, the Bush administration wanted to secure our strategic oil and mineral resources in, in West Africa. So we so having all our military bases all over the world, it's all part of this. I would say I would say a big part of this. And that's that's to do with, you know, us wanting to us, the government identifying that energy resources are critical to maintaining a world class military. So there's it's a kind of a circular argument because there's the argument that we need a strong economy in order to maintain a strong military, in order to maintain a strong economy, in order to maintain a strong military. So you see kind of a circular element there. And that's really what our foreign policy has been built around. But it's also, you know, we can talk about how effective this is. Does this really create, you know, does this really create security for the American people in the world? That's what the goal is if you look at these documents. But when we see if the impact of the climate crisis, when we see also the impact of inequality, because we, when we look around the world, we look to see where is our military and are we actually delivering better security to these two people in a lot of the world? You know, very questionable. And we look at the United States after we've spent the last 20 years militarizing the world to ensure that US strategic interests are protected, we see declines in well being in almost every measure of well-being we can look at but we do see the wealthiest you know wealthiest percentage of the US population gaining more wealth so we we have to really question what are we doing with our military is this delivering prosperity and security and um in in light of the biggest what i would consider the biggest threat we face globally the climate crisis it is certainly um a failing strategy in my opinion so with regards to the National Defense Authorization Act, just uh, to make it clear for my listeners, so the House and the, the Senate versions of this is, have passed, but now there's a negotiate. Can you explain that for people that are, I guess, outside the Beltway and how it all works? No, don't worry. Don't worry. It is it is not straightforward. Um, right. So there'll be negotiations happening. Um, they will have to reconcile the bill. So the other element too when we in terms of folks you know like me and like the colleagues that have been tracking the ndaa is the level of transparency into these processes is very 
it's very difficult actually to really um, follow it super closely. On the House side, there's a lot more transparency because amendments or changes to the to the bill are required to be submitted through the Rules Committee. So you can actually look up and get a list of of changes that are going to be that are proposed or that are going to be debated, um, and you can see whether or not they were at, they were voted on, if they passed or not. On the House side, they do not have that system. So it's it's oftentimes these things are debated and then the final bill is released. Um, and then you kind of have to compare from there. And these bills are thousands of pages long. So it's not an easy, it's not an easy task, but there will be um, a, a reconciliation process. It's called the final will be released and then it will be sent to President Biden's desk by the end of the fiscal year. The budgets are supposed to be passed by um, by October 1st. So that's that's coming up um and we you know follow anyone following what's going on in the house you know knows that there's kind of a big there's going to be yeah potentially catastrophic um issues there we might have a government shutdown on our hands which is really horrible um but we'll see we'll see how they can work things out what's your hope with you know this reconciliation process and and where the NDAA for this fiscal year 2024 goes yeah i I mean, I would really like to see these these sections that were highlighted in the letter um, that we wrote to be removed um, so that the Department of Defense can continue to can move forward um, with plans to to prepare um, in the best way that it can and to make more information more available to the public. That's really important because we've just seen a continual um, reduction in transparency and in, in just in terms of arms sales, in terms of all sorts of different um, aspects of, of our military policy, it's just harder and harder to get actual information about what's going on. So transparency is a big issue. Um, and in terms of these climate, these climate, um, these climate actions, we would, I'd hope to see that. There's also though promising, I believe in the house version, there are certain, um, there are certain proposals. One of them is to make a public database of all the areas the Department of Defense is cleaning up after after uh, pollution issues of pollution or or spills. And so, getting getting more information like that to be available to the public, so that advocates can track this progress and can understand um, what efforts are being done. Um, they, we just need to improve all measures of accountability, essentially. And so any anything that can do that, I'm I'm really rooting for. I, I hope this isn't too off topic, but when we speak about, uh, you know, the National Defense Authorization Act, I think the first one was passed, uh, you know, like years ago, 1961, I think was the first one. You know, how much has this changed since like 9-11 and the war on terror, what impact has it had on these National Defense Authorization Acts? Because, you know, we're recording this for people that don't know on September 12th. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, we're still living in the shadow of 9-11 and the war on terror that followed it. We certainly are. We certainly are. Um, there are so many, there are so many things that the way that it's, yeah, in terms of the NDAA process itself, I actually am not quite sure how 9-11 changed the actual like process of the NDAA. 
um, I'm sure it definitely had impacts. Um, I mean, the overseas contingency operations budget was a big part of the budgeting that had changed after those wars, where it was essentially, um, you know, a classified fund that was very difficult to get information about where that funding was going to support the operations in the wars abroad. Um, and that's since been done away with since those wars have, um, we withdrew from Afghanistan. Um, but essentially, you know, there's the the war, the global wars on terror really, really expanded executive authority in many, in many ways, especially through the authorization for the use of military force. And so those are still, many of those are still in effect. The 2000, um, 2001 and 2003 are still in effect. Um, I know that there's, or I was hearing that there was going to be potentially a debate about repealing the AUMFs, uh, the 2001 AUMF this so fall. So these have been getting renewed constantly. Yeah, They're not renewed. They just, they get passed and then there's no deadline on them. Okay, so okay. for example, right. So, so the military bases in Niger, it, our military operations in Somalia, in Yemen, um, these are all, these are all, um, engagements in engagements around the world that the department that the president essentially can authorize because there was this authorization to use military force in 2001, even though, right, we can look at even though some of the places where the United States is now authorizing to, to engage militarily, the adversaries weren't even a thing in 2001. And so there's a huge executive uh, expanded executive authority since the global war on terror is a really big issue um yeah it's a very big issue before we start closing out i i guess you know i have a lot of people in my audience who i think come from a i would say lay background so th they may not be familiar with the the more wonky aspects of how policy works and and um you know, I, I know people that their eyes glaze over when you start talking about bills and, you know, right. the, the nitty gritty with them. So <laughs> what is it that you would want those people to get out of the conversation you and I have been having? What are the the sort of key points for the lay person listening to this? Yeah. And I think that I think that's really important. Honestly, we need more transparency and accountability for what we are doing with our military budget. Um the Department of Defense has not passed a federal audit ever. So we don't even know many, we don't even know enough about how this, how a lot of the money is being spent. There's lots of waste, waste, fraud, and abuse that takes place, you know, and I'm not just trying to point out this is specific to the Department of Defense, but we know this is an issue. So it would do well to have, um, kind of just an audit of that system and where we can cut back on things or where we can make things more efficient. Um, another big thing to know though, too, is that oftentimes it is Congress that gets in the way of, of a lot of these issues. For example, Congress approves more money for the Department of Defense, for the military every year than it even than the military even requests in the budget. And a lot of that is to um, it's kind of, they call it, you know, pork barreling. It's for, it's to continue um, to purchase um, and and invest in weapon systems that the Department of Defense itself says they don't want, that aren't going to help our military, that aren't needed, but they, they provide jobs in the district. Um, 
So we have that issue. Um, we also have the issue around Congress really um, acquiescing from its its role in overseeing what the president is doing militarily. Again, refusing to repeal the authorization of the use of military force because instead of the president, Congress from our, you know, through our constitutional uh, system is supposed to approve and give consent to when the president uses military force abroad. We're not supposed to give this blanket like, okay, do whatever you want for an un, you know, for a for an a boundless amount of time without having to to report. And so we need Congress to really step in to repeal those blank checks that we gave the president to really and to to give the people a voice as well. Like this is for all of us. You know, we these things are being done in our name with our tax dollars and it really has a huge impact on our security personally in our homes with our families and around the world. So it really is in our best interest to to really push our representatives to be more engaged on this, um, to be more engaged and to actually, you know, do their jobs, essentially do their jobs and not, you know, not pass up um, opportunities to really ask important questions and legislate. We really need that to be, we also need a lot more transparency. We just need to know. And that again, comes down to issues like exactly what we're, we're looking at here with the NDA in terms of like, we need the government to be able to function and to do its job. And we cannot get hung up on issues, parochial issues or culture war issues as well. We are seeing right now, you know, a Republican senator holding up nominations um, for Department of Defense positions, you know, putting the Department of Defense in a grinding halt in terms of their ability to, to move forward. If China were to launch a cyber attack that, you know, effectively achieve the same thing, we, there would be calls for war. But here we have a, a Republican senator who's holding up the Department of Defense because he doesn't agree with their abortion policy. So we just see... We need a real whole of government approach. We really need to get our priorities together. We really need to elect people that are care about legislating and the public good. But um, but also, you know, part of what I, I think a lot about as well is that a lot of folks that are voting for obstructionist candidates have been left behind in this country in many ways. Um, globalization has not worked for them. And so this is something that I think is important for the Democratic Party as well to think about you know, there's a reason why Trump's message about the government being corrupt is resonating with people. And we need to really, really be serious about confronting inequity in this country as well, if we are going to not crumble from within. Because if we keep putting people in power that are intentionally disrupting how our government is going to work, that is going to continue to further divide further create further partisanship and and affect our national security in ways we're seeing right now in terms of our military readiness. And so we need to really address this for our domestic security, but also for for international security as well, because we need to take action and we need to do a better job um, all around. Yeah, I was just going to add to that, too. I think one thing that gets that a lot of people, I think, in this country get caught up in is turning even climate change into some type of culture war issue. You know, I, I think we've seen this with the uh, Republican 
candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. And I don't think it needs to be that way. I think, you know, to me, you know, the word conservative implies wanting to conserve the the society to keep its stability. And, you know, climate change is going to be a huge threat to stability. So I think even conservatives, conservatives and liberals uh, left and right alike should be concerned about this issue. Certainly. Like, what is the goal of all this? The goal is for, if the goal is really for American security and prosperity above all, I I definitely hold the view that we cannot have national security without global security. And we cannot have, you know, our national interests are not separate from a stable and safe, secure world. So we need to consider that as well. But if our goal really truly is American security and prosperity, it makes no sense to not look at climate change as a serious threat and do everything we can to to work towards some better security and including reducing our emissions and preparing um and we we just you know there's a deni- you know the denial i don't you know i couldn't say really where why why that's the strategy um you know unless it's people that have really you know short term interests and they're really invested in the material gains that they're getting for, you know in the short term um or or what but um but truly we need to just live in reality and and prepare and i think that's something that i truly think that's something that most americans would agree with you know i think that most of us are here like here here we are we got to get to work you know we've got to we we need to drink water we need to have fresh air to breathe you know this is something that we we all need we all care about and are really invested in and so this shouldn't be a a partisan issue and we really 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 should try to avoid falling into the traps that politicians will use to divide people to keep us squabbling within our amongst ourselves rather than putting the pressure on them to actually get it together and to do their jobs for the benefit of our security and the world's security last thing i know uh you know i i was telling you before we started recording that uh it's rough times in a lot of places in the U.S. right now, and I think a lot of people politically are uh, either just burnt out, tuned out. Uh, you know, the election is coming up. I think a lot of people are just on edge about a lot of things politically in this country. Uh, so what do you say to the people that are like despairing? What what can they do to, in some small way, make a difference? That's a great question. I think about it often myself. Um, <laughs> um you know, there's there's something I, I recently revisited um, in the Baghdad Gita. I might have said that incorrectly, so apologies. There's um, there's a part of that ancient Indian text that talks about that your efforts shouldn't don't measure your efforts by the impact of them. You should measure your efforts by your obligation to act on it. And so that's something that I'm kind of coming back to more and more is that this is this is a long term fight, you know, towards actual global sustainable and equitable global security, um, not at the expense of others, um, but for everyone. This is something that, you know, we're not we're not alone in. There's been, you know, ancestors and ancestors in history. You know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. So remembering we're just a link in a chain of progress, something I really um, cling to. Um, and also, you know, it's our obligation. It's what it's what we need to do. It's what we should do. And so I think that 
in any way that that's possible for us to engage in, whether that's reading more, whether that's organizing within our own communities. I think mutual aid groups are really kind of a key. And that's since since COVID happened, you know, there's been kind of a resurgence in understand learning and leaning on our neighbors and helping each other out and growing our own food and helping each other when we're sick. I think that building stronger communities is critical and is is revolutionary um because ultimately that's what it's that's what it's about. And so I think the most if we can just remember that not to lose hope, there are always there are dark times throughout history and we just have to keep going and then remember to also have joy and that our entire, you know, we can't, we can't, um, we can't kind of frame our entire lives around the problems that we want to solve. We really have to think and work from a place of creativity and connection and joy and the things we want to see in the world. So that's what I try and remind myself of is that while we are faced, while we're up against a lot, you know, trying to live and trying to hold on to the things and and build on the things that we want to see as much as possible um that keeps them alive you know and that keeps them that keeps the inspiration you know is important so that's my advice but i don't know i'd i'd love to hear from other people too on how they cope because it is some days are are dark <laughs> i i was just going to add to that and i know people think it's antiquated but um you know, friend of the show, he's been on, uh, I think, a few times before, uh, Stephen Kinzer from the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He always has said to my audience when he's on the show, you know, uh, call your local representatives or call your representatives in Congress. And, you know, he puts it a bit more colorfully. He always says, you know, remember to uh, torment your Congress critters. Yeah. But, you know, he's not exactly wrong. Like, no, I know people think, oh, way. what's the point of even trying? But, you know, you'd be surprised. They do have to listen to their constituents. They do. They do. And and truly, like, practical ways, calling in, calling in once a week, you know, getting other people to call in, um, holding rallies, um, writing letters. There's many there's many ways running for local office. That's a big one that we we really need to get more involved in our communities and making it fun, you know, like this is, this is, this is really important. And, and having, having really strong communities at the core and at the center is really how we build movements. And we need movements at this point, we need structural changes. So the more that we can build in, in whatever different way it could be, you know, if your thing is, you know, your thing is food, you could, you could connect with your neighbors on that level, but we need to kind of build stronger communities so that we are are better able to to organize for these bigger changes that we do need to see. Well, Hannah, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Could you let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work and the work being done at the Center for International Policy? Oh, sure. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Um, Feel free to follow us on Twitter. Um, it's at CI Policy. Um, otherwise, as well, I can put my email in the show link, show notes, if that's helpful. Feel free to send me an email if you're doing any work. Um, organizers everywhere, shout out to you. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll be in touch.
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Hannah Homestead of the Center for International Policy. Please keep up with their work. You can find them on Twitter, find them at their website, internationalpolicy.org. They're doing great work. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I could really use your support. It's coming around to the winter season and, of course, the fall, and I could really use some extra cash to help keep this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.